0: The scripture reading today is found in Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 through 17. Please stand. Um, You can find this passage in page 1032 in the Pew Bibles. After this, I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne And honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders addressed me, saying, Who are these clothed in white robes, and from where have they come? And I said to him, Sir, you know. And he said to me, These are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore they are before the throne of God, This is God's word.
1: Feel free to keep your Bibles open to Revelation. Uh, We have, as we mentioned earlier, we have been working our way through our core commitments, uh, the core commitments of our vision to see Christ treasured above all things this morning We finish that even as we're kind of starting the Advent season and then next Sunday we will be in the book of Habakkuk for the remainder of Advent looking at the portrait of longing and lament in the midst of a broken world and how God answers those longings ultimately through Christ. But uh, we're in Revelation this morning so keep your Bibles there and let's pray as we look into God's word together. Gracious Father, we thank you that you are a God who speaks. We pray, Lord, that we would be a people who listen. Would you give us ears by your spirit to hear your voice this morning and eyes, Lord, as we look at this vision in Revelation, eyes to see you clearly. We ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, there are some things in life that seem unrealistic and hopeless taking a family picture where everyone's looking at the camera and smiling, but not one of those weird smiles, a real smile, and all of them doing that at the same time. That's unrealistic and hopeless. Uh, We just had family pictures about a month ago, and of the dozens of pictures that we received, I'm not sure one of them quite qualifies as normal-looking, you know. A uh, couple years ago, we actually had to Photoshop Chloe's face from one picture to another to get a usable picture for a Christmas card. So, unrealistic and hopeless. Raking leaves in New England. That's unrealistic and hopeless. You can spend a full day bagging 30 plus, 40 plus bags of leaves, and it'll look great for five minutes. And then the wind comes along and knocks the bags over and the next, by the next day your neighbors leaves are all now in your yard and what's the point? And then there are other more significant tasks that can feel unrealistic and hopeless. Uh, ending poverty, ending racism, ending world hunger. Feels like that's a fool's errand as, as much progress as you might make in one area, or even just one family, the reality is it's not even a drop in the bucket. We're no closer to accomplishing that goal. And if we're honest, the great commission to go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you, that can feel like a sort of fool's errand as well, unrealistic and hopeless. All nations, all people, groups on Earth. I mean, two thousand years later, are we enter, Are we any closer to seeing that realized? Well, that's what I want to talk about this morning. This is the last of our eight core commitments in our vision to see Christ treasured above all things throughout Metro West Boston, but also in every corner of the earth. Christ treasured through global missions. And our text this morning is the final book of the Bible, Revelation. Now, Revelation is not unfamiliar with seemingly hopeless circumstances. In fact, that is exactly why this book was written or why these visions were given. The Apostle John received these visions recorded here. Uh, He received them toward the end of his life when he was in exile on the island of Patmos in the Aegean Sea because of his witness to Jesus, because of his participation in the Great Commission. It was a time of intense persecution, the end of the first century. Uh, intense persecution of Christianity under the Roman Empire. In fact, it seemed like the gospel of Jesus was losing. It seemed like the gospel was losing and the world was winning. Christians were not just being mocked, they were being murdered in order to put down their witness. And churches were losing their way, getting derailed by false teaching getting distracted by the passions of the flesh and tempted to cave under the weight of intense suffering for their faith. So the gospel's advance at the end of the first century, as John is, is now in prison, the gospel's advance felt unrealistic and hopeless. We're not even a hundred years out and it looks like it's all crashing down. Like the world is going to win. Like there would be no justice for the wickedness and persecution that was rampant. No relief from the suffering. No hope of glory. That's what it felt like. And so Christ invited the Apostle John to look at the world from another perspective. To see the church's situation. To see their suffering. To see the world and their mission in the world from God's vantage point. And the way he does this is through what's called an apocalyptic vision. Now, if you've spent any time in the book of Revelation, or maybe Daniel or Ezekiel, you know that apocalyptic literature is interesting, to say the least. It can get a little wild and woolly at times with these crazy visions. But the word apocalypse simply means revealing or unveiling. That's why we call it Revelation. That's what the word apocalypse means, a revelation. So if you think of a curtain, imaginary curtain, separating the invisible, hidden realm of heaven, of God's space, from the earthly realm, imagine a curtain separating earth from heaven. What apocalyptic literature does is peel back that curtain for a moment To give you a glimpse of earthly realities from a heavenly perspective. To see what's going on from God's vantage point. Both the things that are and the things that are are to come. And it often does so with a highly symbolic imagery. And and the purpose here of books like Revelation is not so that we can know all of the nitty-gritty details of what's going to happen in the future... But rather so that we can live faithfully in the present in light of what the future generally holds. That's the goal. To know how to live today in light of God's perspective on today and tomorrow. The goal of Revelation is not so we can interpret headlines or win arguments with our friends. It is to, the goal is to help us persevere to the end. To finish the course holding fast to the gospel, persevering in our witness to Christ, even when all looks like it's been lost. That's what the book is doing. That's what John and the early church needed, to stay the course amid great opposition. And that's what I think the church needs today, to finish the course in what can feel like a hopeless and unrealistic cause, bringing the gospel to all nations on earth. And so, that's why we're looking at Revelation together. And there are a lot of reasons why the Great Commission. Again, Jesus commissions his followers at the end of the Gospels, uh, just before he ascends to heaven, he gives them their charge to make disciples of all nations. There are a lot of reasons why that can feel like a fool's errand today. Uh, First is just the sheer scope of the mission. It's an overwhelming task. How do we reach all people groups? The Bible uses the word nations. It's not talking about political nation states. It's talking about people groups, ethnicities, ethnos. How do we reach all people groups with the gospel? There are approximately 16,800 people groups in the world. 6,900 of them have no active, self-sustaining Christian witness. To reach them, we must transcend cultures and geography and and dangers, all sorts of obstacles. If you just take the language barrier, just one obstacle, the language barrier, of the 7,000 languages in the world, only 600 of them have the entire Bible translated into them. Another 1,400 have the New Testament. There are thousands of translation projects currently underway, but 1600 languages today still don't have a single verse of the bible translated into them some of them don't even have writing systems yet that's an overwhelming task to see the gospel reach all nations and there are also plenty of enticing alternatives all sorts of things that we can give ourselves to that are easier safer and offer a lot more immediate gratification than bringing the gospel to all nations. So there's competition for our attention and our affection and our energies. And we have a motivated enemy. We have a motivated enemy. Satan does not want the nations to give glory to Christ. He wants them to waste that glory on themselves or on something else. And so he is bent on deceiving as many as possible. And he's mobilized a world of constant opposition. Now, it's it's kind of hard to characterize the church in America as being persecuted today. It's, there's certainly obstacles we face, and, and that seems to be getting bigger. But according to World Watch List, which kind of measures the levels of persecution across the globe, last year was the worst year for modern global persecution for the third year in a row. In other words, it's getting worse every year. There are approximately 215 million Christians experiencing high, very high, or extreme persecution today. It's, you think Paul had it bad, it's even worse than what Paul was experiencing in certain parts of the world today. And on top of all of that, so you, you've got this overwhelming task, this uh, enticing alternatives, a motivated enemy, constant opposition. On top of all of that, the gospel's advance has been entrusted to an imperfect army. God didn't send out the Navy SEALs or the Green Berets to accomplish his mission. He called a bunch of normal, imperfect Christians who still struggle with sin, who don't always get along with each other, who are prone to fear and selfishness, who need grace just as much as those to whom they are sent. An imperfect army. So, so what hope does the Great Commission have? What hope? What will stir us to persevere in gospel witness to the ends of the earth, whatever the cost? We need to join john in glimpsing behind the curtain and see the situation from god's perspective that's what i think we need and that's what we find in revelation chapter 7 verses 9 through 17. now the chapter 7 is part of a larger longer vision in uh set in the throne room of heaven chapters 4 through 16 are this one long vision from the throne room, where John sees that despite what he and others are experiencing on earth, this intense persecution, it looks like the gospel's losing, the heavenly reality is that the lamb is on his throne and he's beginning to execute his judgment. That's the heavenly reality going on despite what John is experiencing and feeling on earth. In chapters 4 through 5, John finds himself standing in the heavenly throne room and he hears this announcement that the risen and ascended Christ, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has conquered. And therefore, he is able to open the judgment scroll and break its seven seals. He is able to begin enacting God's judgment to bring justice to a broken and wicked World that's persisting in rebellion against God and oppressing his people. So he hears this announcement. But then when John turns and looks, what he sees is a lamb standing as though it's been slain. He hears an announcement about a triumphant lion. But what does that lion look like? A lamb is slain, a lamb who's worthy to take the scroll and open its seals precisely because he was slain. And with his blood, he has ransomed people for God from every tribe, language, people and nation. He has completed God's work of salvation. Therefore, he is qualified to enact God's judgment. That's the picture. And so if you think of a scroll, you know, a piece of paper rolled up with seven seals on it. Uh, today we would probably use a sticker to hold it shut, but back then you know, you'd know, you take a little melted wax and you'd imprint some sort of insignia on it, and there'd be seven seals on that scroll holding it together. And as that, as each seal is broken, the judgment of God is progressively unleashed. And in chapter 6, that's what the Lamb does. He begins opening each seal as the judgment of God is unleashed. Before he gets to the seventh seal, he breaks the first six, but before he gets to the seventh seal, there's a pause. There's an interlude, chapter seven, which gives us a picture of those who are preserved from that coming judgment. There's a question asked at the end of chapter six, after the sixth seal is opened and God's judgment is, That's this question they're crying out. Who can stand in the day of God's judgment? If God is finally and fully dealing with sin and rebellion and and bringing justice to this fallen earth, then who's going to be left when he's done? Who can possibly stand in his presence without being consumed by the blazing glory of his wrath? Well, look at chapter 7, verse 9. After this I looked, and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne, before the Lamb. Chapter 6 asks a question, who can stand in God's wrath? Chapter 7 answers, the redeemed of the Lord. They stand in the presence of God. And chapter 7 gives us this answer not simply to satisfy our curiosity, but to strengthen our resolve amid great suffering. To see the mission through to the end, whatever the cost. It is the assurance that God will keep His promise to redeem a people for Himself from all nations for the sake of his glory and for the Lamb. That is the promise presented in this vision. Now, if you look, chapter 7 actually gives us two pictures of the Lord's redeemed. And it's almost certainly two parallel pictures, two ways, symbolic ways of describing God's entire redeemed people, those who are able to stand in the day of judgment because they've been, in one case, Sealed by the Lord, chapter 7, verse 1 through 8, which is given in the language of God's Old Testament covenant with Israel. That's the imagery it uses to describe the people of God there. The full, fullness of Israel. Twelve tribes squared times 1,000. Sealed by God and protected from the wrath to come. The second panel, which is our passage, shows that they're protected from the wrath because they're clothed in the blood of the Lamb. So sealed and clothed, two pictures, both drawing on Old Testament imagery, the covenant with Israel in 7, 1 through 8, and in our passage, it's framed in terms of God's promise to Abraham. Remember that promise to Abraham that all nations will be blessed through him. And so as we look at what John sees in 7, 9 through 17, what this vision is designed to do, is strengthen our missionary resolve in at least four ways. First, by showing us the fulfillment of God's plan. We get to see the results in advance. Second, by reminding us who accomplished that plan. Third, by assuring us of the comfort of God's eternal presence. And then fourth, by directing our passions to the glory of God and the Lamb. And so I want us to see those four pictures in this vision, designed to strengthen our resolve to persevere, whatever the cost. The first is that Jesus gives John a glimpse of the plan fulfilled, God's plan from the beginning of time to redeem a people for himself, not just from Israel, but from every ethnicity on earth. Sometimes we forget that the Great Commission doesn't start in Matthew. You know, we, we, we know Matthew 28. We, we think of that, those verses and we think that's where it kind of starts. But God's plan for all nations goes clear back to Genesis. All the way back to Genesis. The seed is itself is in Genesis 1 when we see all humanity is made in the image of God. Not just some peoples, all humanity but God makes an explicit promise to Abraham long before he chose Israel to be his special people that all nations would be blessed through Abraham and his descendants. So Genesis twelve one through 3. You don't have to turn there. You can follow along on the screen. It says, go from your country. This is God speaking to Abraham. Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation And I will bless you and I will make your name great so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And whoever dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all families of the earth shall be blessed. And later when he reiterates that promise in chapter 22, he says, All nations of the earth shall be blessed through Abraham. What God promised to do for all nations, clear back in Genesis, what Christ commissioned His church to do in Matthew, we see fulfilled before our eyes in Revelation 7 9 through 10. After this, I looked and behold, a great multitude that no one could number from every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands and crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. The plan works. The plan works. The mission will be successful. However hopeless it looks, However crushed we may feel in our efforts to make Christ known among every nation. We have confidence to persevere because we have seen the end. And it is beautiful. It is beautiful. The plan fulfilled. So that's the first part of this vision that strengthens us. Second, we're reminded just who accomplished that plan. It's not us. We're not the ones who accomplished that plan. Rather, look again at their cry in verse 10. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. God is the author and finisher of salvation, and he has accomplished it through the cross. So, again, chapter 5, verses 9 through 10. Worthy are you, to Jesus here, worthy are you to take the scroll and open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation, and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. He has done it. We see that same point in the imagery of the white robes in chapter 7. It's kind of an interesting picture. What, what's going on with this multitude, this multi-ethnic multitude clothed in white robes? Well, the white garments in Revelation have a couple of different, uh, seem to indicate a couple of different pictures, symbol of holiness and purity or at times of, of victory and vindication. And so the idea here is that The accusers and enemies of this great multitude have now been silenced and they stand before God clean and welcome into his presence. This multi ethnic multitude is welcome into the presence of God, but on what basis are they welcome? On what basis are their robes white? It's not because they cleaned up their own lives. It's not because of something they've done to either please God or make it up to God. Rather, if you look at verse 14, they have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Salvation belongs to God and to the Lamb. That's an interesting picture, right? Dipping a robe in blood in order to make it white. But when you're stained with sin, there's only one detergent that can make you clean again, and it's the blood of Christ, the blood of the cross. And he accomplished that, not just for you and me in this room, for all nations, all people groups. The battle has already been won. When Christ sends his disciples into the world, he's not asking them to secure anything. He's asking them to announce the victory that is already true through what He has done in His life, death, and resurrection. To proclaim the triumph of the Lamb. Salvation has been accomplished, not because of us, but because of God. So we can persevere in our witness with that confidence. Third, we can take courage to persevere because all who receive God's salvation in Christ have assurance of His comfort in the end. Comfort in God's eternal presence. That's the third picture we see here. This struggle in in persevering simply in the faith, but also in our witness, which again, for a lot of us... uh, that's not a, an acute struggle, but for most of our brothers, many of our brothers and sisters in the world, it's life and death. And, and for those who go to the ends of the world, it's risky. And, and so that confidence to persevere through that kind of suffering, one of the things that gives us hope to keep putting one foot in front of the forward is the promise, the picture here, that there will be an eternal comfort in God's presence. In the end, it's waiting for his people. We see this multi-ethnic multitude clothed in the blood-washed garments of Christ coming out of the great tribulation. They've been delivered from the terror and trials of this fallen world, enjoying the eternal comfort that God promised long ago. Clear back in Isaiah 49. the, The verses 15 to 17 here are an echo of God's promise back in Isaiah 49. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and they serve Him day and night in His temple. And He who sits on the throne will shelter them with His presence. That very thing they've been longing for in their battle, in their struggle, in their suffering, for a shepherd to shelter them. That's the promise they receive. They shall hunger no more, neither thirst any more. The sun shall not strike them nor any scorching heat for the lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd and he will guide them to springs of living water and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. No matter how bad it gets, no matter how much it costs, no matter how discouraging or frustrating or hopeless it might seem, a fool's errand, We can persevere in our witness and finish the course knowing that our eternal comfort in Christ is secure. That day when all wrongs will forever be made right. And finally, we see one more motivation to finish the race, which is really the greatest motivation because it's not just a motivation, it's the actual goal of our mission. And that is the glory of God and of the Lamb. The prize of seeing Christ treasured above all things. That's the goal. So, one thing that's interesting about this vision is it's answering that question, you know, who can stand in the day of the Lord's wrath? And here we see this multi-ethnic multitude standing. And they're clothed in this, beautiful garment of white robes with palm branches in your hands, your attention is just grabbed by that picture. But the reality is this multi-ethnic multitude is not the center of the vision. Because who are they gathered around? They're gathered around the throne of God, giving their worship to him. God and his glory is the center of this vision. That's the goal And that's the ultimate motivation. And as the this multitude gives their glory to God, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. All of a sudden, the entire heavenly court erupts into praise along with them. And all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell on their faces before the throne and worshiped God saying, Amen. We affirm your praise of declaration. Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom and thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. God will receive the glory due His name. That is the most important and greatest comfort and motivation in all of this vision, God will receive the glory due His name. Christ will receive the prize of His sufferings. The ultimate reason that we plan for missions and participate in them and and persevere in gospel witness, whether here or abroad, whatever the cost, the ultimate reason is because Christ is worth it. Christ is worth it. There's no greater cost. There's no greater prize. There's nothing more satisfying, more beautiful, more worthy than to see Christ receive the glory He deserves. That is the motivation. And the reality remains that there are countless millions today denying that glory to Christ to their own destruction that's the reality today and so this vision of Christ being worshiped it's not just a vision for the glory of Christ it's a vision for the good of people there's nothing better we can offer than to know Christ and be known by him it's a vision for worship that's the goal as john piper has famously said Missions exists because worship doesn't. When this age is over and the countless millions of the redeemed fall on their faces before the throne of God, missions will be no more. It is a temporary necessity. But worship, worship abides forever. The goal of missions is the gladness of the peoples in the greatness of God. When the flame of worship burns with the heat of God's true worth, the light of missions will shine to the most remote peoples on earth. Missions exist because worship doesn't, and worship is what actually fuels missions. The glory of God. It was a passion for God's glory that motivated the Moravians several hundred years ago. Moravians were one of the oldest protestant churches and the oldest organized protestant mission in the 1700s they were sending missionaries all over the world before they were into missions before it was cool to do missions they were sending missionaries to the caribbean to africa india south america north america and when their first two missionaries boarded a ship for the caribbean in order to minister the gospel among slaves even if it meant selling themselves into slavery to gain access to them. They called out to their friends on the shore. May the lamb that was slain receive the prize of his suffering. That was their battle cry. May the lamb that was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Christ is worthy He was worthy to lose everything that his name might be made known. He's worthy of the worship of all nations, and God will keep his promise to redeem a people for himself from every nation for the sake of his glory and for the lambs. It is not a fool's errand. It is the most guaranteed investment you can make on earth. So what does that mean for us? Westgate Church. What is our part in God's global mission? Well, the classic application for a church's involvement in missions is three things. Pray, give, and go. And it's hard to improve upon that list. But I want to add two things to that list this morning. One uh, from something Mark Crooks shared during our recent missions conference in October, and one from our passage. So the first response to this call is to pray. It is to pray. Salvation belongs to God. He accomplishes it. He applies it. It's his spirit that does the heavy lifting. And so we pray for the gospel's advance. We pray for peoples who have not heard. We pray for the Lord to send out laborers into his harvest field. And we pray for our missionaries who are in the harvest field right now. On the back of your worship folder every Sunday, we highlight one of our missionaries that we support to help you be able to pray. In your worship folder this morning, you had a little yellow sheet inserted in there. It's our missionary prayer guide. The missions board puts this together every month to help you know how to pray. So we need to pray specifically for the mission. Second, we can give. We can give sacrificially of our income not only to the work God is doing here through Westgate, but also to the work He's doing through our missionaries around the globe. Westgate supports 30 missionaries and seven missions organizations. Around 30% of our giving goes to missions, which is a big, beautiful number and worth every penny. 10% of our general budget this is just kind of how how it works here. Ten percent of our general budget automatically goes to missions, but then uh, as people are led, many of us give beyond that to the missions budget by designating missions budget by designating specific gifts uh, in addition to that ten percent you could do that by making a pledge to the missions board if that 's something the Lord lays on your heart, so we can give sacrificially we may. Not be able to go, but we can give sacrificially to that cause. But the third is, we can go. We can pray, we can give, we can go. Maybe a short-term trip, lighten the load for some of our missionaries in the field, encourage their hearts, love uh, people in tangible ways. Or maybe God is calling some of you, like Abraham, to go from your country and your kindred And your father's house to the land that he will show you. Did you know that of those 30 missionaries that we support. The vast majority of them came from this congregation. They came from this congregation. They were sitting in these pews. Or in the seats over at Meadowbrook. Before the building existed. And God called them from this congregation to go. Would that He would continue to do that. Would that He would send out an army of people to the unreached from this congregation that Christ would receive the prize of His suffering. So we can pray, we can give, we can go, but fourth, an application that Mark Crooks talked about when he was here recently is we can welcome, we can welcome the reality is that here in America, and especially in Boston, the nations are coming to us. The nations are coming to us. International students, immigrants, refugees. You don't have to cross the globe to see and reach certain nations. You simply have to invite them over for dinner. And if we're going to take the gospel seriously, if we're going to take the Great Commission seriously, then we must refuse To view immigrants and refugees as threats. And instead view them as people. People for whom Christ shed his blood. Then finally a fifth application. Specifically from our passage. Persevere. Persevere. Don't give up. Even when it looks like we're losing. Even when it looks like a fool's errand. God's plan will be fulfilled. Salvation has been accomplished. Eternal comfort is secure. And Christ will receive the glory due His name. It is guaranteed. God will keep His promise to redeem a people for Himself from all nations for the sake of His glory and for the Lamb. May we have the courage and resolve and passion to believe that and to live differently because of it. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. May the Lamb who was slain receive the reward of his suffering. Let's pray. Gracious father, you are victorious and Lord, we praise you that you in your grace and by your spirit, open our eyes to see your victory, to see the triumph of the lamb, that we might take heart to continue to follow you, that we might see even the the incredible worthiness of Christ such that we would be willing to let go of things for the sake of his mission. That the, the things we hold fast to, Lord, in this world that keep us from being effective, or unavail, or effective available, uh, fully committed, that, that you would pry our hands open that Christ would be our greatest treasure and that we would be free to love others and serve him, whether that means going to the least reached or whether that means inviting our neighbor for a Christmas party. Whatever shape it takes, Lord, may we be free to lay our lives down because our hearts are full of Jesus. May that be true among us. May it be true among the missionaries who serve on our behalf, God. Would you fuel their hearts with this vision of your glorious triumph that when it gets hard and seems hopeless, when it feels like they're wasting their time, God, would you meet them with a reminder, would you let them see things from heaven's vantage that the plan will be fulfilled, salvation has been accomplished, Comfort is waiting, and you will receive the glory you deserve. Fill our hearts with that hope and vision this morning and every day, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, We want to continue our worship this morning of the Lamb by sharing together in the Lord's table. Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. He gave his life for us. On the night that Christ was betrayed, he shared one final meal with his disciples and interestingly, it was a Passover meal. If you remember the story of the Passover, what was the highlight? What was the climax? What is it that... Bought salvation for God's people Israel. It was the lamb who was slain. The Passover lamb. And so as Christ is preparing to become that true Passover lamb. To be slain in order to ransom with his blood. People from every nation. He shares a meal with his disciples. That they would remember and celebrate his finished work on the cross. The cup that they drank that night was a sign pointing to Christ's blood. The, the bread that they ate was a sign pointing to his body that was about to be broken for them. And, and not only did he give this special meal to those disciples, he gave his church this meal as a way of continuing to celebrate and remember his finished work for us. And so if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, if Christ is your Savior and King, You're part of his family. You're invited to share in this meal. A meal that tells us that Christ's blood is enough. It's enough for every sinner. It's enough for all of us. So I encourage you, if Christ is your king and savior, share with this uh, meal with us. But if that's not true of you, if you're not a Christian, you're not sure uh, what all this is about, you're kind of checking it out, we're thrilled that you're here. But this is a family meal, and so we encourage you to let the elements pass this morning and and spend some time reflecting and praying on what you've heard, who Jesus is, and what he was willing to give to rescue you. So as the ushers come forward, I'm going to pray for this meal, and then we'll celebrate together. Gracious Heavenly Father, thank you for the blood of the cross. Thank you, Lord, that you are worthy and that Christ's blood is enough. Lord, we celebrate that this morning, and we pray that you would help us to have hearts of repentance as we think about our relationship with Christ. Lord, make us lose our love of sinning. May the taste of Christ and his beauty be so much that that we long to follow you. And would you remind us of the power of the cross this morning through this table? In Jesus' name, amen.